I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we brought the trade guys all the way across town to Georgetown, Georgetown University, home of the Hoyas. We recorded it in front of a live audience of students who asked us very sharp questions, which you'll hear throughout the episode. And we discussed what's happening with the U.S.-China trade talks, what the president means by a U.S.-Japan trade deal, and more, all right here on this episode of the Trade Guys at Georgetown University. It is so great to be here uh, at the home of Georgetown University, one of the greatest universities in the United States of America. And I don't just say this because I'm here with you guys today. I grew up in D.C., okay? And that means that I have been a lifelong fan of Georgetown basketball. When I was a kid, okay, I was here. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, okay? We can get the Hoya Saxa chant going in a minute if you want, okay? But I was here as a kid. My dad took me to all the games when Patrick Ewing was a freshman, okay? And when Allen Iverson was a freshman, and when Alonzo Mourning and Dikembe Mutombo were freshmen, and all through their careers here at Georgetown, when John Thompson was the coach. I remember when Freddie Brown threw the pass that Michael Jordan intercepted in the national championship game that North Carolina went on to win. And I remember when the Hoyas finally went to the promised land and beat Akeem Olajuwon and Houston to win the national championship. I remember the most epic game in the history of college basketball when Villanova and Georgetown faced off in the national championship after playing against each other in the Big East. You guys can't even imagine what Big East basketball used to be like. I'm sure you hear stories about it all the time. Well, guess what? It's coming back, okay? Big East basketball is coming back. Nova's great. Uh, Marquette's great. Seton Hall's great. Georgetown is on the verge of being great again. You've got... <laughs> Won't be long now. Let's make Georgetown great again, okay? Won't be long now. <laughs> and... Uh, as you know, uh, it's great to have Patrick Ewing in the back of the class here. So, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Patrick is not here. He is your coach. But uh, it is totally great to be here with you guys. Um, the trade you know, he guys. Wor- he worked on the Hill. What's that? Uh, Patrick Ewing worked on the Hill when I was there. He was an intern on the finance committee. Is that right? I, you know, yes. I did know that. So that's one of the great benefits. Bob of- Dole hired him. Bob Dole. You Tell remember, everybody you remember Bob Dole? I remember Bob Dole. Bob Dole's still uh, around. Uh, in the 90s, yes. Bob Dole but, ran uh, for president. Ran for Senate president in 96. Leader. He was Senate Majority Leader. He was chairman of the Finance Committee. And uh, Patrick Ewan was one of his interns. I remember so him. This he is one out. of the great draws of going to school in Washington, D.C. Not only do you have very famous professors like Victor Cha, who's your professor, um, you get to intern on Capitol Hill. Um, you get to intern at CSIS, and one of the great things that you can do is you can intern at CSIS not in the summer when everybody else is trying to intern at CSIS. You can intern in the fall and the spring. So I know you guys all know about CSIS's internship program. I urge you to apply and take advantage of it. Um, I also urge you to subscribe to the Trade Guys podcast. Um, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And My interns are actually here. Your interns are here. Jonas and Madeline, are you here somewhere? 
Raise your hand so you can talk. They will tell you how great it is to be a CSIS intern. <laughs> okay. Or Interns not. Interns will tell you how great. We, that, Afterwards. We, we can do that after. Bill, can I ask you to lead off and tell us what is the latest on China? Well, it's sort of the never-ending story. You know, it just keeps going on and on and on. They're continuing to- Is this the way uh, the Chinese want it to be? Is this the way uh, Trump wants it to probably be? It's probably convenient for them. It's not the way Trump wants it to be. He's impatient by nature. He wants it to be over. Uh, the Chinese interest is to drag it on as long as they possibly can. Uh, they're doing a good job of that. Uh, Ambassador Lighthizer was in China last week. Uh, apparently, because <laughs> I thought there was some significance to it. You know, I thought, ah, he's going to close. Uh, and it turns out it was mostly because the Chinese keep track of how many times they come here and how many times we go there. And it was our turn uh, to go there. So he went for what was essentially one half day of talks and a visit to the Forbidden City. That's a schlep. But it's a major schlep for the Forbidden City. I've done that, although actually for more than a half day. Um, but Liu He, the, his Chinese counterpart, is here this week. They're talking starting today. Uh, all accounts are they continue to get closer. Uh, they're going to have a package that consists of they're going to buy a lot of stuff. And uh, the latest rumor is maybe not quite as much stuff as they said they were going to buy. Because somebody finally did some uh, research and figured out that we can't possibly make all the stuff that they promised to buy. Uh, the, the rumored number was they were going to buy $1.2 trillion worth of American products over six years. That's $200 billion a year. Uh, we, last year, we sold them $120 billion. So this would be you know like 150% more than what we've been doing annually. Uh, there's still only one soybean crop a year in the United States, uh, and you know even if they bought every one of them, um, it would be problematic. I think what's also beginning to set in is uh, people who think about this are realizing we don't want to sell everything to China because then you put all your eggs in one basket, and that creates a situation five years down the road where if they decide to cut us off, uh, you know we're all hosed. Whereas if we have markets elsewhere. Uh, you know, and a diversified uh, trade posture, we're in much better shape. But there's going to be a big buy because the president wants a big number, so it'll be you know some large number. They're conti they continue to argue about the so-called structural issues that uh, the White House has put on the table, and I think most people in the United States, anyway, would agree that they're, they're the right issues. The Chinese appear to be willing to make concessions on theft of intellectual property. We've talked about this before. They've promised Obama they wouldn't do it. They certainly can promise Trump they won't do it. Um, and it's in their interest not to, it's their interest not to allow theft because they've got IP of their own they want to protect. Um, they appear to be moving in the direction. But we're not stealing their IP because who would we give their IP to? Well, we keep it for ourselves and use it to advance our own industrial ball. But we wouldn't steal Chinese IP and give it to X company the way they've done in the past? Well, A, two questions there. How do you know we don't steal their IP? Well, I, I don't. Do you I really mean, know? You were, well, you were Undersecretary yeah, of Commerce. I know. I'm you tell gonna, me. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but <laughs> what I will tell you is that the United States has a very firm policy of uh, not sharing intelligence with private companies. Correct. Uh, and it's it's for a pragmatic purpose, which is they don't want to choose between them. Sure. We're, we're, this, know, we, if, after all, we are capitalists. If we somehow, this is all hypothetical, if we somehow glean from the Chinese the latest innovations in automobile battery technology for electric cars, okay. uh, 
who would we give it to? Do we give it to Ford? Do we give it to GM? Do we give it to Chrysler, which is Tesla. an Italian company? Do we give it, do we give it to Tesla? Uh, so the answer well, is we don't do that. To give it to Tesla. The answer is we don't give it to anybody because we have. Well, then we would be picking and choosing right. winners and losers, and we don't believe in that. Right. So what do we do with that technology if we, if we actually happen upon it? Well, we just hang on to it and save it for an appropriate moment. So like I'm envisioning like the scene in, you know, uh, Indiana Jones where where there's this vast, you know, trove of objects the, the, the United States yeah, yeah, the warehouse, yeah. warehouse where the United States. You guys know that we have movie? Top people working on this. Yeah, okay, top people. All right, Scott, <laughs> last weekend President Trump spoke at a rally in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yes. And he spoke for an hour and 22 minutes, and he went through the Mueller report. He talked about the Clintons. He talked about the election of 2016. No one said it could be done. All the new issues. He, all yes, the, all right. the new issues. Yes. And towards the end of his um, discussion amongst himself, he started talking about China. He said, China. And he said, we want to make them feel good. No, 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 but we want to tear them down. We want to make them feel good. We want to tear them down. What the hell is he talking about? Well, look, first let me stipulate this. Does he want to do both? I don't know. Well, okay. nobody really knows, yes. but I think the answer is yes, okay? And for there are some reasons for it, but let me, the most important thing is, and occasionally some of my relatives who are distant from Washington, uh, you know, check in on my mental health, knowing that I work on trade policy. And I tell them, look, the president's great for business. It's awesome, all right? And so... You know, the, the great thing is the trade guys have another two to six years of entertainment ahead of us. Yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't, yeah, mean yeah, it's always, sure. that doesn't mean it's always clear. Uh, and in this case, I think the president means both. That he is, he he has always said we need to be tougher on China. And that was consistent with campaign themes. It's consistent with his policies. And it's a policy that I think he has broad public support for. But he also needs to cooperate with China. He has broad public support. For being tough on China. In theory, being tough on China, well, not for anything specific to do th to That's China. right, because okay. the American people uh, and the, this both Gallup and Pew have pulled this issue. Sure. They believe China is, a, is an unfair trader. Yeah. All right. And okay. so, so the, he's, that's the one issue where he does have, uh, does have a lot of support, on, on the trade agenda at least. But also, uh, given, given the, the delicacy of, say, talks with North Korea, uh, China's an important uh, potential ally. In, in settling those issues. So this is the part Asia. where we want to make them feel good. I, and I think that's probably what he was referring to, but we'll, we'll a, know soon. It's partly a, it's a legacy of, of his predecessors. He blames his predecessors uh, for most everything. But I had no idea he blamed his predecessors. <laughs> well, Are just, we talking, we're talking about Obama. Mostly. We're talking about but, Clinton. But Clinton. We're talking, he, I think we're even talking about George W. Bush. Uh, yes. Everybody. Uh, everybody. They're all guilty. Yeah. They were all yeah, soft. But they, it raises an important question. They're all not but, as well educated as him either, apparently. Um, <laughs> he has the best words, you know. Yes. <laughs> Whatever you say about the man, the man knows how to communicate. He spends a lot of time thinking about how to communicate. Anyway, and we digress. <laughs> no, but Scott alluded to an important issue. I, I would argue that the trade problems with China have been building over a long period of time. The last two presidents... Obama and, and W, I think, basically felt that the U.S.-China relationship was bigger than one thing, was yeah. bigger than trade, and they wanted Chinese cooperation on priorities for them. For right. Bush, it was, it was uh, Iran uh, and dealing with Iran, and it was a, a variety of global issues. For Obama, it was Iran, it was climate change. 
uh, and for both of them, really, it was North Korea. I mean, they didn't always get the level of cooperation they wanted, but uh, they had they were the top priorities uh, for those two administrations. Trade was a subordinate priority, and and they played it out that way. Trump uh, doesn't care about climate change. Uh, pulled out of the Iran agreement. And trade is his top priority. So it's not hard for him to say this is the most important thing and to blame his predecessors for saying it wasn't the most important thing. It probably, you know, but that's why we have presidents. They right. get to pick. And, and uh, it, it just like may that. be because the president sees economic issues first and foremost when he views foreign policy that this actually isn't inconsistent with other, other actions. If you look at critics, every time NATO comes up, we wind up talking about how many German cars are here. You know, so and and how how much we buy from Germany and how big the trade uh, our trade deficit is with Germany. Uh, so there's a sense that the president, because of his background or for whatever set of reasons, sees foreign policy principally through an economic lens. You so can, you're arguing that he actually has a coherent foreign policy. I didn't say is, coherent. Okay. <laughs> okay, but he has a foreign policy yes. that's oriented around and, trade, and, and China's the linchpin of it. It's a policy of victimization. His fundamental view is the United States has been taken advantage of by everybody else for a very long time, and now we have to get even. And it's the United States standing up and doing to other people what he says they've been doing to us for a long time. The interesting thing about China is it's probably the one area in this policy where he's got broad public support. Right. And the, the remarkable thing has been, to my mind, the erosion of support for China in public opinion over the last five years. It's not just Trump. This precedes him. And it's really due to changes in Chinese policy. It's not just the arrival of Donald Trump. You've got a, a Chinese leadership now that is pursuing more market control, uh, more non-market uh, policies, more subsidies for state-owned enterprises, and is pursuing a variety of, of policies of, of more intimidation of journalists, intimidation of students, intimidation of minorities in China that has got the human rights community and the journalism community very agitated. And their economic policies, the ones that Trump is complaining about, have basically pushed the U.S. business community into a position of silence. You know, 10 years ago, you'd find the U.S.-China Business Council, which is the association of companies that do business in China, standing up defending the Chinese every time there was a crisis. And now that doesn't happen. Look, you see the same thing happen in Europe, too. No, I, th I think that's right. Look, from from Nixon's visit to China, there was a, for 30 years, there was a single foreign policy goal shared by the United States and the West, which was to bring China into the, the institutional arrangements of the West, to bring them into these horizontal uh, institutions so, so that China would develop in a way that adopted norms and standards practiced elsewhere. And that was the project, right? That's what led from, from Nixon's first visit in the 70s to, to the 90s, uh, 99 accession of China to the WTO. That was the that was the agenda. The unspoken part of that agenda is if they come into the world order, they'll behave just like us. <laughs> and that's the part that has changed for many American firms there, for, for, as Bill points out, the journalists who are now beginning to be aware of the human rights concerns. Uh, so it, 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 this dynamic has changed. But it was, a, it was a long story, sort of the soothing scenario that this is all going to work out. Uh, and so the president is now approaching this sort of reality-based. Let's go back to something specific on China. Okay, just the other day, China's state council said, this was on Sunday, that the country would, that China would continue to suspend additional tariffs 
on U.S. vehicles and auto parts after April 1st. This was a goodwill gesture following a U.S. decision to delay tariff hikes on China imports. So how important is this particular extension? Is this a little thing? Is it a big thing? What does it signal about the negotiations right now and about China's posture? Basically says they're trying to find a landing zone. All right. This is all negotiations wind up. If you conclude a negotiation, you've got to have some elements. And you ought to, as you're converging, what you don't want is is sort of side issues to break that apart. So look, Bill talked about there's a market access component. There is a sort of a rules component about dealing with structural change in China. There's an enforcement component, which is we got to check to make sure you actually did what you promised. And those three things are fairly important and pretty complicated. And looks to me like de- deferring or, or, or continuing to waive tariffs that have been announced is a way to, to allow the convergence on those three important issues to happen. It's also a goodwill gesture and I think kind of a, a subtle message to this administration because the issue that will probably go down to the end uh, and will probably be resolved by the two presidents alone is what do we do about the U.S. tariffs? Yes. Uh, because the, what the Chinese are saying is that we can't agree to anything unless you agree to get rid of them. Uh, the, 200, the additional $200 billion beyond the original 50 that has been imposed at the 10 or 25 percent level. And the president, our president is saying, no, 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 we're not going to get rid of them right away. We have to wait and see if you're complying with the agreement um, first, and we'll get rid of them or not on a phased basis. I don't think that issue can be solved short of the two presidents. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a precedent for this because the same issue occurred with respect to Canada and Mexico uh, and the steel tariffs when we were negotiating that agreement. And Ambassador Lighthizer told the Mexicans that if they signed the agreement, uh, the United States would get rid of the tariffs, uh, and the president overruled him. So the message to to Lighthizer is that's not a decision you get to make. It's a decision the president gets to make. I think what the Chinese are doing here are saying, we can be the big person here. We will get rid of ours. Hint, maybe you should get rid of yours. One final thing on China before we move on to another topic, uh, still staying in Asia. But I want to ask you this. At the heart of our deal and our talks is to encourage China to adopt a more market-oriented economy, as you guys have mentioned. Now, this might be be careful what you wish for, right? Because what if this all works and the deal ends up reinforcing China's economic power? Is that harmful to us? Is that a problem for us? Well, I think the American philosophy has always been if they're competitive and strong because they're a market economy— and they're beating us in a fair fight, fine. You know, that's the way it goes. Now, there's always a question of would we actually say that when that circumstance arrives? Right now, uh, they're not beating us by market, using market pr- principles. So it's easy for us to demand that they do. Yeah, the experience with the, with a sort of American high-pressure capitalism is as long as markets are contestable, we'll come out fine. And we, we don't really worry about competition because we live with intense competition in, in our home market. Look, the U.S. market is fully contestable for Chinese firms, as in firms from all over the world. They, they have, they, they have the, they're guaranteed- Unless the, you're Huawei or ZTE. Well, it, unless you've got a specific problem. If you've got a law enforcement problem uh, like, uh, like ZTE, uh, then, then that's a problem for any company with a law enforcement problem, domestic or foreign. Uh, so, but but by and large, markets are contestable, and we welcome it, which is why we're the biggest recipient of foreign direct investment, and why their economy so robust. So, so I, I think that that would hold, uh, you know, 
not because China's ultimately a market economy in China would be no different than a market economy there, in Europe. But there are ironies here, though, because what we are asking them to do in this negotiation, or we are asking them to make changes in their economy. Yes. That if you if you look at it, they're really the same changes that Chinese economists are telling the Chinese leadership that they need to make because they're changes that actually are in China's long-term economic interest. Um, one of the problems that all governments have, including this one, is that the politicians don't listen to the economists. And it's a case in China. Xi Jinping is going in the opposite direction from what he should do, and, and growth is slowing down. Now, there was an interesting blurb yesterday. We were mm-hmm. just talking about this before the program began, that first quarter Chinese uh, data shows uh, a resumption of some growth and a resumption of, of positive indicators after a year of of, uh, or two years, really, of declining growth. And as you read through the article, it turns out to be not quite as good as that sounds. The headline is, growth is back. Uh, if you read through it, uh, it appears the reason that growth is back, uh, at least on a qu- one-quarter uh, basis, is that the Chinese have resorted to the same pos- policy they've resorted to for 20 years, which is stimulus. Uh, you know, which export is export-led growth. Yeah, uh, export-led growth. Uh, throw more money at the economy. Uh, extend credit. I mean, one one uh, analyst was quoted as saying, basically, in China right now, anybody who wants a loan can get one. Now, the good news is that Xi Jinping had been channeling credit in the past. That might be good for President Trump. <laughs> you get a loan. You gave off another bankruptcy, <laughs> right? Uh, Xi Jinping had been channeling credit to state-owned enterprises, which is a reversal of what his predecessors had tried to do, which was to move the economy in more of a market direction. Apparently, this last quarter, now they're channeling credit to everybody, uh, including private companies. But it's still just this kind of shot in the arm that does not do – they're not doing any economic reform. So long term, they're going to end up still being in the same declining shape that they've been in. All right. I thought we were going to move on from China, but I got an amazing question. Um, from one of the students here. This is from Anya, who is class of 21. She asks, what is China looking to accomplish through their increased investment in Russian Arctic infrastructure? What should the U.S. response be to China's attempts to add the Arctic to their One Belt, One Road initiative? I think it's a great question. This is a very interesting thing to watch because one of the, one of the things that I think is debated internally in China is uh, do they aspire to be a regional power uh, or a global power? And uh, previous Chinese regimes have basically taken Deng Xiaoping's advice, which was to bide your time and keep quiet and don't aspire to any of those things. Take care of your own economy first. Uh, I think later Chinese leaders clearly have tried to make clear that um, China wants to be the leading power in, in Asia. And this, by the way, was one of the rationales for TPP was to reinforce the U.S. presence in Asia and basically try to prevent that from happening. Their Arctic uh, efforts, uh, which uh, involve, you know, sea routes uh, around uh, over the top of Russia, basically, I think uh, you can argue are are part of a larger strategy to become much more of a global force. Uh, I mean, in commercial terms, it's a way to get their stuff to Europe faster. whether it's faster than the train is, I think, debatable, but it's certainly faster than going all the way down around India and up through the Suez Canal and, uh, you know, through the Mediterranean. Uh, it's also a way, though, to spread soft power. Uh, and they've got plenty of money, so if they're going to build facilities along the way, people who've studied this, the Arctic issues and are, are 
make the point that, you know, yeah, the ice is melting, so you can do things that you couldn't do 20 years ago. But the fact is that there's no infrastructure along the way if anything goes wrong. If what happens to you uh, is what happened to that cruise ship off the coast of Norway and your engines fail and you're north, you know, you're north of Siberia, there's no port you can just put in and get repairs. You know, you're just totally lost. But in this kind of decision making, you can't lose sight of hydrocarbons. Look, currently China, and in fact, the whole of factory Asia is powered by the Middle East. If you look at their current sources of hydrocarbon, hydrocarbon fuels, Russia's principal export is hydrocarbons, natural gas and oil. Good right? point. So there's, there's a connection there. And in some ways, uh, given the, uh, the usual level of, of chaos in the Middle East, the, part of this strategy for Russia and the Arctic has got to be a hedging maneuver on the part of China. They're diversifying their energy sources. Yeah, Aramco reported a small uh, uh, a profit. Yes, the other, Aramco's yesterday. now more profitable yeah. than Apple. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, but which is good, good for Aramco, and, and but maybe leads to stability, but probably won't. And keep in mind, one of the unique things about North America is North America is powered by North America. And, uh, and and that that uh, we we don't really in a position where we no longer neither have to hedge nor it's less of a of a central issue to our own e own economy that there's stability in the Middle East. So it's a complicated game, but I, I would you know commercially everybody's always got their eye on how you power your economy, and that's got to be a factor here. Great question, great question. Let's move on to Japan. Um, my Japanese journalist friends tell me that. President Trump's very popular in Japan. The relationship between Abe and Trump is very strong. Um, Abe, of course, was the first um, foreign leader to visit Trump when he, after his election. A, gold, a golden golf club was given. Uh, but now there's, uh, there, there's troubled waters or, or no. Uh, President Trump seems to have his sights set on the Japanese. Reported that trade talks are on the horizon. President Trump's about to visit there. Uh, what's going on with Japan? Bill. Well, it's heating up. Uh, you know, the president. When the president came in, uh, his his marker of uh, is of of how we're doing with the economy is trade deficits, and he immediately picked out the four countries with whom we have large at the time had largest deficits, which were China, Japan, Canada, Mexico, Mexico. Uh, well, and, and uh, not Canada and, and Germany, Germany too. Yeah. But Japan is up there, and they became a target just like – I mean, he discovered fairly quickly with Germany that you can't negotiate with Germany. You have to negotiate with the whole EU. But uh, he seized on, on Japan and wants to have a bilateral negotiation with them to rectify the imbalance. Now, I think in his mind that comes down mostly to car quotas. But uh, occasionally he talks about agriculture because basically what he did – to the American agricultural establishment uh, was to screw them by pulling out of TPP right. because TPP gave us a, a significant market access in Japan on pork and beef and some other commodities, uh, all of which we lost when we pulled out of TPP and which the Japanese have now given to uh, the other 10 members of CPTPP, the analog that's been created, and uh, concessions they made to the Europeans. So this is basically TPP without us. Well, without us. But they, the Japanese also negotiated a free trade agreement with the EU and made more agriculture concessions there. So our ag guys have taken a double hit. They've lost the access to, to Japan, and it's going to be hard to get it back because the Japanese have given it away to other people. Uh, the, the president's remedy is let's have a bilateral trade negotiation. Uh, he met with Abe last September, I think when Abe was at the 
UN, and they reached an agreement in which uh, I think, you know, Abe got the better of us, frankly. Abe came in with two things he wanted. He wanted no more tariffs, because Trump was threatening car tariffs, and no agriculture concessions beyond the ones we've already made. What did he come out of? There was a piece of paper. What did he come out with? No more car tariffs while we're negotiating, and no more ag concessions beyond what you've already made. What do we get? An agreement to negotiate. So now they're starting to negotiate. Uh, yes. But 15th and 16th is the first round. Correct. Uh, Abe may come here at the end of April. Uh, Trump is definitely going there at the end of May because of the new emperor's uh, enthronement. He'll be there again for the G20 meeting at the end of June. So it's heating up. Yes. Trump being Trump, he probably wants a deal by the time he shows up. You're all students of foreign policy and international affairs. So what, what do you watch for? The thing I'm watching for is a definitional matter. What does the president mean when he says trade agreement? Because you walk onto Capitol Hill and talk to a member of Congress, when you say trade agreement, they see 800-page document and, and another 300 pages of exhibits uh, that's comprehensive, that, that, that fits, fits the Congress's standard, which was expressed in 2015 in Trade Promotion Authority, a comprehensive agreement. That's, that's what most of us who've been here a while, for a while hear when someone says trade agreement. I think the president just wants a deal, okay? Now, why do I say that? Well, it would at least explain the behavior Bill mentioned earlier. Uh, but also, look, the president is now spending some time on Capitol Hill. I think he, is, he and his team now are aware that Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives the power to regulate international commerce to the Congress, not the White House. So he has to, he has to deal with the Congress. He also has recognized the fact that the, every state has a, two senators and at least two cows. So agriculture actually matters in sure. these negotiations, big time. All right. And so what he, what he hears, what, is, what he, the president and his people hear when they talk to members of Congress, especially the Senate, is you're killing us with these steel tariffs, by the way. I, constituents are complaining hourly on this matter. The second thing he hears is you geniuses tore up TPP, which gave us a lot of agriculture market access. Now go get it back. All right. Those two and those two messages actually combine in what I think is going to happen. I think that despite what people around town and all the policy people are hearing, which is, oh, boy, a trade agreement with Japan. Won't that be fun? That'll take 19 years. All right. Uh, but what the president is actually say what, what he's thinking when he says that is I want to use the settlement of, of steel and aluminum tariffs to get my farmers something and kill two birds with one stone. We'll see how this plays out. But my guess is the president has about as much interest in a in a uh, uh, long negotiation with Japan as, say, Andrew does. So, <laughs> my my longest negotiation with Japan might be uh, my Raku order at Raku Sushi. Yeah. So, um, all right. Here here's here's a great question from Claire, who's a senior. She asks along the lines of what you were just talking about, Scott. She says, "How will the Trump administration work with members of his own party?" in Congress who disagree with him on trade? That's a great question. Sure. Yeah, look, uh, <laughs> the, it's been true for a while. Now, a couple things to think about. Well, first, uh, Republican members of Congress have been sort of pro-market and pro-trade for a long time uh, and often at the uh, not completely aligned with their constituents. Republicans in the country, voters, Republican voters, tend to be more older and more rural than Democratic voters. And that cohort of people, older and rural, uh, tend to be more skeptical about trade agreements than younger and urban people who, who tend, to be de tend to be Democrats. 
So, so, but Republican members of Congress have been supportive of open markets, uh, just as a general philosophy of, of pro-market. Uh, now, that's, that's fact one. Fact two is President Trump currently has about a 92% approval rating among Republican voters. All right. And that's an important because if you're a member of Congress, that's extraordinarily high. That's very high. Now, first of all, it's why, in my view, there will never be there will not be a primary challenger to President Trump in for for reelection. He won't face a primary challenge. There's simply no votes out there uh, to get oxygen from. So so he has very high support, but also Republican members will need Trump voters to get reelected. Remember, uh, you face face the voters every two years when you're a member of the House. All right. In 2020. Donald J. Trump's going to be on the ballot with strong support. You want to be on the side with Donald J. Trump. So a lot of the conversations for Republican members who view trade differently than the president, they're happening in the kitchen. They're not happening in the parlor. We're not talking about that with company. We're, we're expressing our concerns privately. So you will see some members of Congress, particularly senators, uh, take issue with uh, uh, auto tariffs, take issue with the national security, uh, national security uh, uh, use of national security to stop trade without the permission of Congress. So there's some things going on in the background. But I think as long as you have this particular political alignment where where Republicans in, in Congress need the vote, need the same voters that where Trump is very popular, the conversation is going to be not in public. There are other factors. He's he's vindictive. He goes after people personally. Yeah, he settles score. Uh, people are are afraid to stand up to him. In, in a way, he also provides some cover for uh, some parts of the party. I think there have been some signs of, of unrest on the tariffs because yes. you've got uh, Republican elected officials who are basically pro-trade and pro-free trade who are nervous because of the of the tariffs, particularly those who represent agriculture states, for all the reasons Scott said, when it comes to agreements, uh, however, and USMCA is the pending one, uh, you see it slightly differently uh, because, in essence, I think he'll get massive Republican support for the agreement. Why? Because the pro-trade Republicans are going to vote for it because it's an agreement. It's arguably uh, marginally better than NAFTA, so why not? Uh, the trade skeptical Republicans, uh, you know, his base, really. Uh, he's telling them it's the greatest agreement that ever happened. Uh, he, you know, nobody is going to be more protectionist than Donald Trump. He gives them cover. So all the Republicans virtually are going to be able vote. to vote for for a trade agreement. Yes. The tariffs are have been the, the sticking point for some of the members. Along the same lines, while we're talking about politics, I have another really important question. This is from Varsha. Um, my wife's been telling me I need reading glasses, and I think Varsha proves this. Now, you have excellent handwriting, but it's very small, and my eyes are... So if I mess you up your glasses? name... No, no, I'm good. If I mess up your name, I apologize, but I believe it's Varsha, who's class of 21. Varsha asks, with the upcoming 2020 elections, how will contending presidential candidates view change on trade policies in Asia? I think the well. Let me do the Democrats for the, mo for okay. the moment. Since all I, thirty of them, <laughs> yeah. There's a, a mayor of Miramar, Florida, who's announced his candidacy. Oh my! So the list is growing. Make all the fun you want. Yeah. You know, a year You'll from now, somebody. your tone will be different. That's <laughs> that's all I have to say. It's a serious question, though. With yeah, the sure. upcoming 2020 elections, which a lot of people are watching very, very closely, it's already begun. Trade's going to be a big issue. 
Um, one of, as Scott said, you know, we're, we're in business for the trade guys are in business for not just the next two years, because even if Donald Trump loses, Donald Trump's still going to be talking about trade and people are still going to be covering what Donald Trump has to say about trade, whether he's in office or out of office. Trade is here to stay. Trade used to be something that the Undersecretary of Commerce talked about quietly with trade experts and trade lawyers and all, and members of Congress. Issue, really. Yeah, it was a quiet <laughs> issue. Now it's, you know, we got a podcast. I mean, who has a podcast on trade? We've got a podcast on trade. It's a front page issue every day. And in the 2020 campaign, it's going to be an issue. Side note of career advice here. Those of you that think you're going to make a living doing foreign policy, not a chance. Pick trade. Pick I, I, economics. Pick trade. No, no problems no. are ever solved. Right. It's permanent employment. <laughs> well, I, foreign policy is kind of the same thing. Well, hey, when, when I was at, well, if you were to the Middle East, sure. But when I was when I was on the Hill, uh, working for a member of the Finance Committee, he's kidding. The by the way, committee. going into foreign policy and international affairs is a fine calling, and you should absolutely do it. I'm not kidding. I remember, <laughs> I remember being on the Hill working for a member of the Finance Committee in the Senate, and having the people who work for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee sort of looking down their noses at us weedy people who work with money and grubby yeah. little things yes. like cars and right. airplanes and potatoes. Soybeans. And soybeans, yes. Uh, and, but then, you know, think of the career opportunities and think of what, what well, happens when you get he's a now getting his revenge. foreign policy. Well, life changes except on trade. We've been fighting with Germany on chlorinated chicken since 1965. Chicken tax. Okay. Right. The reason there's a tariff on on, on light trucks of 25 percent in the United States is the chicken tax. The chicken tax was imposed on West Germany. There was no EU. There was West Germany, uh, and uh, because they blocked exports of American chicken, and uh, Lyndon Johnson got fed up with it and tried to get their attention by blocking shipments of Volkswagen light trucks. That's where it started. It, it exists today. And we're still talking about we're it. We're still talking about it. And so this is a problem that started when I was 11 years old. Okay, it, I'm still making my career in that business. So consider that. Sometimes foreign policy problems get solved. The Kentucky Fried Chicken Lobby was hot back then. That's right. Uh, the uh, the some trade problems actually never get solved. Now, can I answer the question? Sure. Please. <laughs> by, all, by all means. <laughs> I think the way the, Demo the Democrats have, have got divisions on trade as well. It's different, but they're also divided. If you look at poll data, they have historically been uh, a more pro-trade party. If you look at really historical data going back 150 years, the Republicans historically have been the party of protection. Abraham Lincoln was a great protectionist uh, and proud of it, actually, if you, if you read some of the things that he said, because the Republican Party was the party of northern manufacturers who wanted protection from British imports. The Democratic Party was the party of the South, at the time, and they wanted to be able to export cotton and, and other agricultural products. Uh, that was true until really the 60s and 70s when things began to uh, flip uh, as trade in, began to cause more job losses in industrial products. The organized labor became less pro-trade. They have always been an important organizational and financial element of the Democratic Party. And the Republican Party became more multinational as big companies began to export more and began to grow uh, outside the United States more, and the party's views evolved. I would argue from a political science point of view, over the next 20 years, you're going to see the, both parties going back in the direction of, of where they began, for, partly because their demographic makeup is changing. The, the Democratic base uh, is young people and minorities, 
And if you look at poll data, those are the two parts of our population that are most pro-trade, most pro-globalization in the country. Uh, there is this huge overhang of organized labor, which is a, an important element in party structure and party organization, uh, and all the elected officials pay a lot of attention to it. The party has squared that circle on trade largely by not criticizing the president's objectives, but by criticizing his implementation and saying, basically, you've got the right idea, but you've, you've screwed up the implementation. You've caused all this collateral damage. You know, tariffs, you know, maybe they were a good idea, maybe they were a bad idea, but they've ended up hurting a lot more people than they've helped. And you haven't implemented them right. Your process for exclusions, the Democrats are really focused on the, the exclusion process that the Commerce Department has built in to try to provide for exemptions from uh, on a case-by-case -case basis on tariffs. And the Democrats are making a lot of points by saying, you haven't handled that transparently, you haven't handled it efficiently, and they're right, by the way. Uh, you haven't done this very well. So their argument has been, you know, not to take him on philosophically so much as to say, you haven't done it right. And I think you will find all 30 candidates uh, there's a spectrum, but all 30 candidates will, will make that criticism of Trump. Some of them will stop there. Uh, so they're going to say, you haven't done it right, and you haven't and, been transparent about and it. And I, the Democratic candidate, will do it right. And, and he's going to say, well, you don't know what you're talking about, and I'm not going to telegraph my moves, and then it's going to go back and forth that way. And then they're going to say two things. They're going to say, number one, uh, you think uncertainty is good. Uncertainty is an, is that, is an economic disaster. And he's going to say, look at the market. It's great. Well, it's beautiful. It's he'll a beautiful say that market. today, but we'll see what he's, he's going to say a year from now. Right. The other thing they'll say, which they're all beginning to say, is your biggest mistake, Donald Trump, is, uh, is you're trying to do everything unilaterally and you're not building coalitions. Right. And particularly- You're on, retreating from the world. We don't have any leverage on anything. And, and you're not, well, and you're not trying to enlist any support. And you've got, particularly on China, yes. you've got a situation where, number one, they don't like to be outliers. Past presidents, Obama in particular, was able to get them to change their policy when he got everybody else lined up to convey mm -hmm. the same message. You've got people in Europe who have now begun to realize that they face the same challenge economically with China that we do, saying, we need to we need to work together on this. And this particular president is not really interested in that. He thinks we that's, can do that's it ourselves. A little, that's a fair criticism. And look, uh, on the Republican side, I think it's fairly straightforward because the, the purpose of a political party is to win elections. Yep. And I think the Republican Party is going to decide, given the popularity of President Trump among the base, that they're going to stick with the guy. They're going to run with his reelection campaign. He is going to do his best to declare victory on the trade agenda. Uh, now, that's, that, that is not exactly straightforward. A couple things have to work out, like he has to be able to get the USMCA through the Congress, the implementing bill passed, and implemented. And uh, so, so he has to actually deliver something there. Uh, and on China, it's also an open question. It's a question that you all should follow, because it's one thing to have handshakes and smiles and pop the champagne corks in April of 2019. It's another thing in 2020 to be able to show that China has actually kept its word. Okay, so there's, there'll be he'll either have a winning hand, the economy will be great, and he'll cruise to reelection, uh, or he's going to have some controversy in that space, and there'll be a specific criticism that Andrew just mentioned, which is you screwed up with China, buddy. You didn't get what they what they they broke the promises to you, and it's because you didn't work with allies to do it. So you know your your policy is wrong. But even then, Scott, couldn't he say, "I'm the only one who's holding China accountable." 
He probably and, will and, say and, that. And people, and that's a simple message that, like you said at the beginning of this podcast, people in America support. And on the other hand, is there a Democrat out there right now, and maybe you know, looking a, a little bit ahead, that could counter that argument with anything as clear-cut and simple on trade as I'm holding China and the rest of the world to account. Is there a Democrat in the field that can argue something as simple on trade and as powerful as Trump has made his arguments? We don't know yet, but I'm actually hoping for that kind of contest. A year from now, this will be basically a binary contest. I presume, uh, now that's a, the Democratic Party process, given proportional representation, tends to get, have two candidates by next April. Whereas the Republican, uh, because of winner-take-all rules in states, Republican Party converges faster than the Democratic Party. Uh, but I'm, what I'm hoping for is that you have a year from now, you have clarity about at least who's not the candidate and that they're, they're beginning to make arguments and test them out uh, against their general election opponent. Uh, so that's when we'll actually know whether these messages are resonating. The, the, one that, the one that could have done that was Sherrod Brown. Yeah, senator from Ohio who chose not to run. There's a command of trade issues. But he has, yes, and he is, he, I think he's able to articulate a Trump-like message in a more, yes. in a democratic way and, and draw the contrast. Coming from a state that will respond to it and yeah. carry that message. I think if other, if other candidates pay attention to what he had been saying when he was thinking about running, that would, that's a good path for them to follow in the, in the campaign. Interesting. Um, we're about out of time. I want to wrap up with one final question, um, and it brings us back to Asia. This is from Max, who's a sophomore. And Max says, how do you see uh, Trump's trade policy affecting our trade partners with the South Asian nations like India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh? Oh, I thought you were going to say Southeast Asia. Yeah, Southeast Asia, <laughs> we've already left them standing at the altar by tearing up TPP. Okay, so with all the disappointments baked into the cake there. And, and, and yet in Southeast Asia, like most of the world that trades with China wants to hedge, they want a, they want a relationship with the U.S. as well, uh, goes well beyond our treaty allies. Uh, the India-Pakistan uh, one is is interesting because that's been a prickly relationship for a long time. Uh, there is actually not a huge volume of trade. These aren't important trading partners today, but they're big growing economies. Uh, and uh, so, so India presents a, a number of problems, always has, and has made life difficult for not just the U.S., but other sort of major uh, industrial democracies by being a founding member of the GATT. They were at the, they were at the Havana Conference in 1947, uh, but always resistant to opening their own market. And, and the Indian market is, is, is very difficult to, for foreigners to do business in for a lot of, a lot of reasons that, they, that have been there since Gandhi. Uh, and uh, there's very little in, incentive to reform among, uh, among leaders in, in, uh, in India. That, now, reform is something we'd like. It's not a criticism of India. It's democracy, all right? And if you want to win an election in India, you, you have to put together 300 million voters that like your views. So uh, they, they've come to a different decision. Uh, but that's a, that's a relationship where there's, I think there's many presidents uh, have thought there were a big opportunity there. Uh, it's very difficult to, to realize. Pakistan's another story. Pakistan has a very close relationship uh, with China. It's almost the same relationship that the U.S. has to, to, to Israel. The, the, the China-Pakistan relationship is very close for a lot of not obvious reasons, uh, but, but it is. And so, but also, once again, there's not much trade there. Uh, and trade is, you know, trade is still affected by geography. Uh, it, it's just the distance from the U.S. versus the distance from to, to Europe or, or China 
or other other trading partners uh, for both India and Pakistan are huge. I don't see a lot of a lot of change. George W. Bush and then Obama, I think, were successful in in putting the bilateral relationship between us and 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 India in particular on a more positive track uh, after a long period of of, of frustration uh, for a lot of reasons, um, most of them having nothing to do with trade. Um, and uh, Bush uh, was successful in getting over a lot of that. There were also changes in the Indian government uh, that changed a lot of domestic policies that made it easier for the relationship to develop. They still seem, however, as Scott said, to have difficulty getting over the hump of a whole range of policies that are built into uh, their culture, really, to protect the small businessman, the small retailer, the small manufacturer. Uh, and there's a prevailing, a pervasive view, I think, in, particularly in India, that uh, opening up their economy to the Americans really means allowing uh, Walmart and Amazon to come in and destroy everybody. And it's not that simple, but that's what a lot of people think. And uh, the Indians have, have consistently taken steps to prevent that from happening. And the result is that we go round, we have periodic trade talks, we go round and round and round and never accomplish anything. And, uh, and then uh, this administration, uh, you know, they, there was supposed to be a big gathering in the fall. It was called off because there was no, no sign that there was going to be any progress. Uh, right now, nothing's happening because they're, they're about to have an election in the next few weeks. Um, I think everybody will go back and recalculate after they see who wins the election and once the cabinet is established. We'll probably start the whole thing up again, but the reality is I think the parties are not that far apart on, on fundamentals here, and we'll probably continue to go round and round with them without major change over for the next four or five years at least. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all your questions, but don't worry. Don't have fear. I'm taking all these cards with me, and we're going to be asking a lot of these questions over the course of our next bunch of podcasts, and we'll give you full credit for them. So this means that you'll have to subscribe. <laughs> you'll have to listen. He's an evil genius. You'll, no, have to leave really... us re you'll have to leave us a review, and you'll have to like us on whatever social media you, know, you, you subscribe to. I really want to thank you all for being such grace hosts today. Thank you, Dr. Uh, let's give it up for the trade guys. For Dr. Chaw. For Dr. Cha, and let's give it up for Patrick Ewing and the Hoyas. <laughs> All right. To our listeners, next week, the trade guys will be on hiatus. Some of us will be on spring break. Some of us will just be here in the office working. In any case, we'll catch you all the following week right here on The Trade Guys. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.